Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John, the 14th chapter, verses 23 to 29. Um, it is, in many ways, a continuation of, uh, of the discourse that in John that is subsequent upon Ju Judas leaving the group at the Last Supper, and Jesus going on then to explain. We've already seen how he then talks about the, the great commandment to love, to, uh, to love one another as the Lord has loved us. And we've seen that that means a deep and, and abiding sacrificial love a love that really takes something of ourselves <clears throat> and is something that we accrue to ourselves. So here, Jesus is continuing this discourse. And he's saying, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we shall come to him and make our home with him. Those who do not love me do not keep my words, and my word is not my own. It is the word of the one who sent me. We already now have kind of a, a contradiction um, to some of the Christian traditions that somehow or other the love of God for us does not really necessarily have consequences for us in the world and that we're kind of uh, unable to do anything and that uh, the whole idea of, of good works or the whole idea of accruing merit somehow or other is... Uh, is 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 just not possible for them and yet jesus makes it very clear here that there is an active component in in accepting the god's love and in believing in the lord and that is to keep the word and uh, and the keeping the word is an active uh reality it's not just keeping it in my heart it's keeping it in my life and so there, it, it is tied, as St. James says in his letter, to the, to the good works. Show me faith without works. Um, for it is, faith without works is dead. That there is, a, there is a whole person community. This is part of the danger of separating <clears throat> the natural and the supernatural into absolutely exclusive orders of being. For in in the in at least at least in the incarnation, those two worlds are joined together in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in joining and in us being joined to Him, they are also a a du dual reality in our own lives. There are what we would call supernatural dimensions to our everyday life, and there are also natural dimensions to our prayer life, to our spiritual life. And so <clears throat> it's not really possible to, to separate those two concepts one from the other, especially not after the incarnation of the Lord. So Jesus then has already said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, if you love me, then you will live your life according to the way that I have instructed you. And, uh, and he says, and I understand, I, I understand that... Uh, that um, you, you don't really understand this in its fullest depth from, from what I've said, and you have not yet experienced my passion and death, he's saying to the disciples. Um, but I have said things to you while I'm still with you. Now he says, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, 
whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. The sustaining spirit of Christ in the world is the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church and in our personal lives. It isn't easy to have devotion to the Holy Spirit because we can't really get a good grasp of, of uh, images of the Holy Spirit. Um, he sent his, his fire and as a dove and so forth as the bringer of shalom, as the bringer of peace, the bringer of the one that brings peace into the world. And, the, and fire is the, is, is the symbol kind of of wisdom. And so he's the bearer of wisdom. But what John is going to do in this gospel is take us deep inside the whole idea of the Trinity. And this is something that very often people say, well, this is just kind of a, uh, a, a side thing, you know, for, uh, for theologians to, to argue about. It gives them something to do in their spare time. Um, absolutely, absolutely not so. That absolutely, Jesus is talking about the reality of God. And he's talking about the reality of God as it exists in, in its ability to be grasped by ourselves. You know, that this is the whole idea of the incarnation, too. How do we understand God? Well, we can understand God by taking a look at Jesus. Did Jesus do? He went around doing, he went about doing good. But he went about revealing himself through his miracles. And ultimately, he, he, he died and he suffered and he died for us. Ultimately, he gave his life for us. Ultimately, it's because of him that we are able even to live. And so then he says there is another dimension to all of this, and that other dimension is the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord. And the Spirit of the Lord is going to be the gift of understanding and the sustaining power. That's what we talk about when we talk about um, inspiration in the Scripture. We're talking about the sustaining presence of the Spirit and the Word of God, that as he said here, he will teach you everything and remind you of all I have said to you. And so, basically then, in this way, what he is, what he is doing is um, making sure that we come to know and come to understand that, uh, that God himself is going to be with us. We, we, we know the companionship of the Lord. Now we know from, from the understanding, from the wisdom, from the sustaining of the memory, from the sustaining of the word. This is why the tradition isn't forgotten. This is why it doesn't just pass away into oblivion. It's because the Spirit of the Lord sustains it in believers and uh, helps us to understand everything that the Lord has said and has spoken. And at the end of this about the Holy Spirit, he says, peace I give you, my own peace I give you. A peace the world cannot give, this is my gift to you. Here he's dealing with the, the Hebrew word shalom. And, and the Arabic word shalem, it's, um, it it's more than just peace. It's kind of well-being. It's kind of, you know, a wholeness of life, an integration into life. It's a little bit of all of those things. So it isn't just, you know, peace and uh, when you hold up the, the V sign or whatever that is, or shake hands in church or whatever manifestation there might be of this, of this shalom, that it is deeper than that. And it isn't just an emotional frenzy either. 
It is, it is a calmness, a peace, a conviction within that we will not be deceived and that we will not be deceived by the word of God and we will not be deceived ultimately by the emissary of the Lord. And so he says, this is my gift to you, this kind of, this kind of equanimity, this kind of peacefulness of heart, this kind of depth of understanding, this kind of broad vision of reality. And so he says, it's, this is what I'm giving you and it's gonna sustain everything. And in the sustaining of everything, it's going to be that which gives us the fruits of our faith and uh, which is an interior peace, trust, hope, understanding, confidence. And he said, don't let your hearts be troubled or afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and shall return. So he has said how many times to the disciples has he had this discussion with them concerning, you know, that, uh, that he must suffer and die and so forth, be separated from them. He's talking about separation from them for a long time in the Gospels. And he said, you know, I, 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 you, you heard me say this, I'm going away. But then he says, I shall return. And uh, so there is then the sense of a second coming. There is a sense then that while he goes away, he will return, but there's different ways of return. He will return in the spirit and therefore sustain the faith and sustain the belief of the people. He will do that. And then he says, for I'm, but he said, and if you loved me, you would have been glad to know that I'm going to the Father. In other words, if you love me, then you care what becomes of me. Then you have a certain joy in what happens to me. And, um, and so then, but he says, I'm going to the Father. Then he says, the Father is greater than I. And this has been kind of a bone of contention within Christianity ever since, ever since John's Gospel. For if, in fact, the Trinity is three equals, Father, Son, and Spirit, all combining in their love relationship, all become, becoming one, then what happens if one is greater than the other? Then isn't, does that mean that someone is less divine than the other? Does this mean that in Jesus' case, he's not bringing the Spirit into this, but he's bringing himself into this, that the Father is greater than he is? And so out of this came a very tragic heresy, we might call it, the, the heresy of, uh, the, the heresy of Arianism. I think we've talked about this before, but it, it, it does us, it serves us well to know something about Arianism because it certainly isn't dead. And it certainly is very much a part of some Christian perspectives and, um, and in some ways of dealing with the Lord. And uh, so basically, what Arius did, and this was battled out at the Council of Nicaea, um, for at the Council of Nicaea, they were defining who the Christ was. And on the basis of this text, there was a priest named Arius, um, an Egyptian priest, who said that because the Father is greater than the Son, the Son is therefore not God. The Son is greater than we are, but he is not as great as the Father. St. Athanasius battled this ferociously on the council floor. And we know that there were even physical struggles over these issues on the council floor. 
and uh, and eventually in the in the Roman Church, uh, Athanasius prevailed, and we came to understand the the oneness of the three persons, and then Arius, um, as a matter of fact, then his theory, his heresy spread throughout the northern tribes and much of the eastern and much of the eastern um, church as well it becomes kind of a foundation for islam but it um, which is a conglomeration in many ways of early christian heresies but uh, but became the dominant religion in the uh, in, in outside the borders of the roman empire in in uh, in europe and it was to remain that dominant. In fact, is there was a bishop, an Arian bishop named Uphilis, um, and he translated the scriptures into Gothic so that the Visigoths and the Ostrogoths and so forth had access to, to the scriptures. And they were very, very dominant, therefore, throughout Germany, throughout France, Spain, and so forth, anything that was outside the borders of the, friend, of the Roman Empire. And it wasn't until the, around 500 when Clovis uh, converted to Catholicism that uh, that the Catholic ethos began to to uh, push into the Arian heresies and and to diminish them, and uh, and certainly that became very very much a part when Islam invaded through Spain and up into France, that that those parts of Arian Christianity then began to fall as a structural as a as a <clears throat> as an institutional phenomenon. But if you stop and think of the way that you hear the Lord spoken of today, you begin to realize and begin to understand that, uh, that it's certainly not a dead heresy, that many people really do kind of believe there's a distinction, a radical distinction between Jesus and the Father. Um, I know he was mocked, Cardinal McIntyre of Los Angeles was mocked uh, back in the late 60s for looking at part of the revolution that was going on and saying it's a manifestation of Arianism. And they said, oh, Arianism was from the fourth century. See how out of touch he is. But he was very much in touch because that's exactly what it was. Um, then he says that you would, you would be joyful that I'm going because you would be joyful at that which is good for me. And uh, if, if, you, if you love me, um, and this goes back again to that, that insight from, from the glorification of the Lord, from the passion, death, and resurrection of the Lord, that true love means that you will the good of the other, um, even above your own. And, uh, <clears throat> well, in some of the theological systems, this is uh, <clears throat> thought to be perhaps not possible, <clears throat> but if it's not possible, then love's not possible. And I think that we all know through experience or through the scriptures, through faith and so forth, that love is possible. And, uh, and so experience contradicts then some of the great uh, intellectual networks of thought. Then he says, I have told you this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. In other words, I'm outlining for you everything that's going to take place in a way that I am going to leave you, and he does leave us. He leaves us through the crucifixion and death. But then he also, and this is something in John's Gospel that's hard for us to comprehend sometimes, because in John's Gospel, there is a, a rapidity of events. They're not stretched out like they are, especially. They're not stretched out like they are, especially in, um, in, in Luke's Gospel. Everything kind of happens at once. And in that everything happening at once, 
Um, there is the death, there is the resurrection, and then we know the very next day, Jesus is bestowing the Spirit upon them, and Jesus has already, it seems, reunited with the Father. Um, and so what's happening here is that he said, all this is gonna happen in order that you might believe what I've been telling you, and that in the belief of what I tell you, you may then, of course, believe everything I have said and follow my example and follow my commands as he starts out this gospel with, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. If you love me, you would have been glad to know that I'm going to the Father. And so there is a joyfulness in the whole catastrophe of Jerusalem. For it is there that the Son, in a special way, reunites with the Father. That becomes problematic for us as well. While Jesus was on earth in human form, was he therefore alienated from the Father? Was he then no longer God because he had then also become man? And the answer to that can go in two directions. In one direction, <clears throat> it can go saying that, yes, the Son is alienated from the Father, and then we fall into, and then we, we, we fall into Arianism, and that, therefore, he's less than he could be. We can go the other way, which is very predominant. Not, it's, it's predominant in the Western Church, but it's more, it's more oftenly articulated in the Eastern Church that, um, that basically, Instead of, instead of him being alienated from the Father by joining our same self to us, he is drawing us into the Father. And therefore the Eastern Church willingly speaks of the divinization of humanity. The Western Church speaks of that as well, but in a very different sort of way. That uh, they, they take a more, you know, they, they take more John's Gospel of that, let, that um, as the Father and I are one, so you know, you, let you be one with me, and so forth. So there's a weaving of humanity into the divine economy. And in, and in so doing, of course, they're talking about the same thing the East is talking about. They're talking about our divinization. For that's what eternal life is all about. Um, it is, in fact, that we share in the personhood of Jesus that we as part of him share in the personhood of Jesus. And we know, for instance, that this process begins very early in our lives for those of us who are Catholic, for those of us who are born Catholic. And, um, and it continues on until the very end. And the way that we become part of Jesus is of course through the Eucharist. That uh, in taking into ourselves the life of the Lord, body and blood, soul and divinity, we're taking the whole thing in. We're, we're letting God and in the incarnate God and God as God into ourselves, into our flesh and into our hearts and into our souls. And that uh, I think I've mentioned before that one of the great expositors of this is um, is Saint uh, Saint Elizabeth of the Trinity, where she equates in a letter to, in, in in 1905, the year before she dies, she in a letter to the Ave Chevignard, that she she talks about the the Eucharist as being you know isn't isn't this in fact heaven she says because we are united and joined with God Himself through the Eucharist. And that she, she goes on about 
about what that really means and how that really is to briefly. But the idea that if God is within us and we are within him at that moment, then that's part of our pre preparation for eternal life and that's part of the reality of what eternal life is all about. And in so doing that then, from the very moment on, and I think this is something we have a very hard time with because you know, part of the experience of, uh, of the contemporary church is that after the basic sacraments, um, people don't feel an obligation to, uh, you know, people don't feel an obligation to continue the practice of the faith and uh, until maybe it's time to baptize their own children or, or time to die or whatever it is, that instead of becoming part of our whole life, it becomes simply a, a variety of occasions in our life that we don't approach with this understanding of union and this understanding of desire. How many Catholics would, not, would, would skip Mass on Sunday if they really believed that they had an opportunity to be united to the living God? I don't think many would. But because they do, it means that in overall, we don't really believe that for many. And if so, then we find a definite rejection because we're not keeping the word of the Lord and therefore the Holy Spirit who comes in his name while he, while he gives us the opportunity to learn and the opportunity to understand and the opportunity for that peace in the faith, um, he doesn't force it upon us. And so we choose not to have that. And uh, we choose therefore oftentimes simply to be supercritical in order to self-justify ourselves. So it, it isn't all a pretty picture, but certainly we know that there are armies and, and large numbers of, uh, of faithful Catholics who do understand and do believe that this is a moment of union with the Lord. I remember in, in, in grade school, um, our, my sixth grade sister telling us, you know, don't genuflect once you receive communion in the church because you ourselves are tabernacles containing the presence of the living God. Um, it might <clears throat> not be a common thing for us to think, but it was a very dramatic thing for us to think about as, as 11 or 12 year olds. And it's something that sticks in your mind and something that sticks in your heart through the, through the ages, saying that, you know, I have God inside of me. I am, I, I'm, a, I'm a carrier of the living God in the world. And, uh, and, and, and what, a, what a remarkable reflection that is. What a remarkable thought that is. I've always been grateful to her for giving us that thought. Then he says, so that when he comes now and he's saying the Father is greater than I, well, St. Bonaventure grapples with this too in saying, you know, that the source is always, is, is, since the Father is the source of the triune God, there is in a sense not a greaterness but a priority. Um, on the other hand, Jesus is saying as a man, as incarnate, you know, that the Father has not been in a sense tainted by human flesh and blood. And so there is a greatness in the Father's uh, integrity as, as divine without sharing it with us in our own humanity. And um, there, there, there is also the idea of if you truly love another person, you really do believe them to be in many ways greater than you are. And, uh, and because of this love between Jesus and the Father, 
that there is there is also a sense of if the father were the one speaking the father may well say the son is greater than i because this is a deference that's part of loving someone is acknowledging their greatness and acknowledging in a way that they are greater than we are we can go on now with this for a little bit because i think it's important that we understand saint augustine said that when jesus when God, when Jesus was present to the Father, he was also present to us. And he d uses the Old Testament for this. For Jesus himself identifies himself with the voice in the burning bush, who is the God of Israel. Um, he also is identified with the pillar of fire and the, and the cloud pillar and so forth, the voice of the Lord. Um, but then when he is incarnate and present to us in a very concrete sort of way, um, in, in daily life, it doesn't mean, Augustine says, that he's absent from the Father. For he can't be absent from the Father, really, because he's one with him. And if he exists, so too does the Father exist. So we don't see then the Lord Jesus Christ as being just something totally dis disassociated from the Trinity. He isn't. He is, in fact, the Trinity, as is the Father and the Spirit. And so what happens to us then, what happens to the Lord then, is that we have with us, and what the disciples had with them, is the presence of the living God. All the time that Jesus is with them, and all the time that Jesus is with us, and especially and dramatically, as we said, in the sacraments, that it is there that God is present to us in a, in a very real and a very direct sort of way. So the triune God then is, and John says God is love. Well, you can't be in love if, you love, don't, if the only person you love is yourself. And uh, I suppose you could say that, but it, it, isn't, it doesn't measure up to the biblical understanding of the word at any rate. But basically, what happens then is that the Father's love for the Son, the love's Son's love for the Father, the Father and the Son's love for the Spirit, the Spirit's love for the Father and the Son, is so absolute, so complete, and so strong that it is what binds them together as one. And so what Jesus is saying when he's telling us to love one another as he has loved us, is telling us to have a love so strong that it binds us together with the living God through him, through his humanity, but also his divinity, and through also the sacrament, as St. Elizabeth tells us, in, of the Eucharist of the Lord. This idea that the Eucharist is God is something that, that we, we ourselves have to grapple with in our faith, and it's essential that we come to believe it, and come to because only then can we really begin to reflect upon what it means for us and to enjoy the fullness of its benefits in our lives. For while it is present in those who hardly believe, it certainly does not affect their lives as much as it does the ones who truly believe. So let us truly believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is with us, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, and that he will, if we join ourselves with him, take us with him into eternal life. 
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.